for our vision series, we're looking at, you know, what is it that we're all about as a church? What is it that, that God has called us to do? What are we supposed to be focusing in on? What should consume our thoughts and our efforts? Uh, more succinctly, what is our mission? What is our mission as a church? And I think it's, as I mentioned last week, it's important to do that semi-regularly because if we don't, a lot of other really good things, valuable, noble, important things can steal our attention and we can actually lose sight of what God has actually specifically called us to do. So Capshaw's mission uh, is really no different than what any other Christian church's mission is, and that is to make disciples of Jesus who make other disciples. That's really the only mission that the New Testament allows for. Uh, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And that's, that's the imperative in that passage, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he goes on to say, and I will be with you to the end of the age. So the church's mission is to make disciples and make other disciples of Jesus. Now that mission can be stated in different ways. So not every Christian church has to have as its mission statement, making disciples of Jesus who make other disciples. It can be stated differently. And our mission, for example, takes into consideration, not just our task, making disciples, but also what a disciple is. So our mission of our church is this, for God's glory, we exist to treasure Jesus, become like him together and share his gospel. That doesn't just articulate what we're doing, but it, it uh, brings to some clarity what a disciple is and what a disciple does. So yeah, we're supposed to make disciples, but we have to know what a disciple is if we're going to actually make them. And as I mentioned last week, after a year of study, uh, prayer, and discussion at the elder level, we concluded that a disciple is someone who treasures Jesus. Um, and that, that word treasure really encapsulates a lot of those 30 attributes of a disciple. Worship, obey, uh, serve, listen to, follow, and you, the list goes on. So treasures Jesus becomes like him together, that is, is growing and becoming more like Christ. That'll be the focus this morning. And then also shares his gospel. That'll be next week. So you can't really be a disciple of Jesus if you don't treasure Jesus. And if you're not becoming like him together, you're not growing in Christ's likeness, you know, at least over the long period, that's a problem. That's a concern in terms of discipleship. And if you're not telling others about Jesus, Again, that's, uh, that is, those are marks of a true disciple. So um, a true disciple is becoming like Jesus, and that happens in the context of community. So just have two points this morning, and we'll get to them as we look at Hebrews chapter 10. We'll, we'll look at verses 11 through 25, but let me start by reading verses 11 through 18. Here reads the word of the Lord. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly... The same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after 
saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now you can see just from that reading, there's a lot in there. And if we were working our way through the book of Hebrews, uh, expositionally, as we just mentioned, we would spend uh, more time. I'd break this up into a couple of sections and we really look at it because it's really, really dense uh, material. But the significance of it becomes clear right away. And that is Jesus is different than, Jesus is better than uh, the other priests. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to explain why. The Old Testament we find detailed descriptions of the various sacrifices that the people of God offered. There were five regular sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the uh, fellowship or peace offerings, sin offerings, and then what was called, uh, often called the trespass offerings. And among those, and that, now they were all significant, and they all played a very important role in, in the covenant community, but I think it's fair to say maybe the most important was the burnt offering. It was a sacrifice that was offered daily, once in the morning and, and once in the evening. This is what 11 refers to, the priests who would offer their sacrifice daily. And the person who brought the burnt offering to be sacrificed would actually identify with the animal that was to be slain by placing his or her hand, his hand on the animal's head, acknowledging personal sin. And when the animal was slain, it then died for that person's sins and to appease a holy and perfect God. Neither the one who offered the sacrifice nor the priest actually ate of the meal of the sacrifice. It was all burned up in the fire. This was sacrifice in its purest form, a valuable, pristine animal given up wholly to God. This happened every day. Why do you think it happened every day? Because every day the people sinned. More than just once per day, many times per day, in their thoughts, in their motives, in their actions, in their words. They sinned every day just like we do. Well, when the priest finished administering the sacrifice, he didn't sit down. He remained standing as an indication that his work was not done because the person who brought the sacrifice was going to sin again the next day. And the day after that, and the priest's sacrifice never completely took away the person's sin and guilt. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus offered the sacrifice, that is to say, the sacrifice of his own sinless body, the surrendering, the willful surrendering of his own life, he sat down at the right hand of God, symbolizing that he was done with his atoning work and it was completely sufficient to take away sins once for all, forever. Verse 14 tells us that he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So that, skipping down to verse 17, God remembers their sins and lawless deeds no more. For those who, who trust in Jesus, those who have turned from their sin, their own independence, their own self-reliance, and trusted in the work of Jesus, his life, his death on a cross, his resurrection... For those, their sins are totally forgotten by God, forever atoned for. Now, when we think about forgetting something, 
we, we think about it escaping our minds or us losing track of it. I had the pleasure this morning of going into one of our small groups and just spending time with them and answering the, the Q&A. I got back to my office and I realized I don't have my keys. And so I thought, what do I do with my keys? It's not unlike me to put them in a place that I'm going to, uh, I put them in places that I will specifically remember. And of course, those are always unique places that I always forget. And so I'm thinking, where did I go? So I'm pacing around, found my keys uh, in that room next to, I think, well, I don't know, maybe it was an overhead projector or something. I don't know how they got there, but they were there. We think about forgetting things. It's like, well, they're out of our minds. Uh, we've just, they just escaped us for a moment. It's pu- purely uh, a thought exercise. But in Hebrew thought, in ancient Near Eastern thought in particular, forgetting went beyond the realm of thought and actually into the realm of action. Forgetting referred to an act that demonstrated that the forgotten thing no longer exists. It's no longer a factor. Because of Christ's sacrifice, our sins no longer exist to God in terms of our standing with God. So on our best days and on our worst days, on the days that we fall into temptation or the days that we stand firm against it, on the days when we are perfectly a, a perfectly patient parent and a great neighbor, or the days when we yell at our kids and our neighbors and we honk our horns at every slow driver on our best days and our worst. These are all hypothetical for me. I never do any of this stuff. Uh, on our best days or our worst days, we are viewed as holy because of the one who has perfected us for all time through his perfectly obedient life and death the Son of God. This is why, as you've heard me say before, as Christians, we can laugh at ourselves. It's why we don't have to always pretend to have it together. It's why we can admit our shortcomings. It's why we confess our sins to one another, just like James, brother of Jesus, talks about. We confess our sins to one another because our standing with God is secure. Our sins have been forgiven, yea, forgotten by God. That's your story this morning if you're in Christ. God is not keeping tabs on all your failures, waiting to thrust them in your face and say, See, I told you you'd never change. That's not how God works. You have been perfected for all time through the work of Jesus. This is why Christians ought to be, of all people, the most joyful people around. Our sins have been forgiven, forgotten by God. He'll never hold them against us. Again, we've been totally cleansed. But of course, deep down inside, you know, we don't feel so holy, do we? We don't feel holy. Our sins don't feel like they've disappeared. In fact, often they feel like they're constantly in front of us. We feel like we've gained victory over particular sin. We fall into that same temptation again. And we say, oh, there it is again. I'm doing the same things. Well, that's where verse 14 comes again. Scan down there. Look at it if you will. For by a single offering, he, Christ Jesus, has perfected us for all, or perfected for all time. And then look at the next phrase, those who are being sanctified. So sanctification, being set apart as holy unto God, is a we might say a definitive and a progressive reality. 
positionally, we are holy. That is, as I mentioned, when God looks at us, he sees us as those who have been totally cleansed because of the cross work of Jesus, the benefits which are ours by faith. And he sees us as righteous. We've not just had our sins and guilt removed. We've been given Christ's righteousness. So that's all true positionally. But practically, we know we are far from holy. We are selfish, impatient, greedy, fearful, rebellious people who are prone to wonder, as the hymn says so well. And sanctification is is God closing the gap between where we are positionally and practically. So one thing the Bible makes very clear is that those who are in Christ will necessarily become more and more like Jesus over time. And this is not by their own strength or willpower, but because Christ is in them. But it's not instant. It takes time. And one of the One of the values of our culture that we've sort of amalgamated into our own rhythms and belief systems is the one of instant gratification. So so we want to be satisfied instantly. And and I'll be just very candid with you. I'm the worst at this. Like I don't like to go in a fast food restaurant that doesn't have the self-check kiosk. I want to take care of it myself. I want to pay for it myself. I want to get ahead of the lines. We just want things to be done instantly. And yet sanctification is just not one of those things. It doesn't work like that. Sanctification is the lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus. And it's slow most of the time. So, you know, we're we're so prone to self-evaluation. And what I tell people all the time is don't look in terms of minutes and hours or even days for that matter. You want to look at a wider swath of time. You know, look at months and years and decades. Sometimes, yes, sometimes God delivers us from a particular sin immediately and miraculously. So you'll hear about it. Maybe this is your story. Praise God if it is. You hear about somebody who was really angry, just a very angry person. And God just totally renewed that person to where he or she's not angry in that way anymore. Or maybe you'll hear about someone who was addicted to a substance or, or maybe someone who had a tendency to lie or whatever it is. And God just supernaturally, miraculously, and, and almost immediately rid that person or significantly reduced that sin tendency. That happens sometimes. But most of the time, growing in Christ's likeness is slow as the Spirit of God softens and molds and shapes and conforms. And chisels away those hard edges and makes us more like Christ. But the scriptures are clear. A disciple is someone who treasures Jesus, as we saw last week, and is becoming like him. So here's the first of our two points. A disciple is made holy and becoming holy. And that becoming peace is critical. Things that are alive grow. The person who's indwelled by the Holy Spirit will grow. For those who are alive in Christ, who've been made alive through faith, they will grow. God will sanctify his own. He does sanctify his own. We had, uh, over the holidays, we had 19 people in our house and two different families. or Well, our extended family, uh, Janine's parents, 
And not everybody was there at exactly the same time and not everybody spent the night, but it was a lot of people. And uh, one of those people, uh, the, mo- the, the, the MVP, the most valuable was my two month or uh, two year old uh, granddaughter. And there was one particular day when, you know, you, you know how two year olds can be. Uh, she was, she's so sweet and pleasant and just beautiful and has the greatest smile, but she was kind of getting tired of all these people. You know, there's just too many. And with so many people around, it's like she couldn't take two steps without, without being swooped up and hugged on or kissed or whatever. And so uh, my son kind of gave me that look like, Dad, you got to get us out of here. Uh, and so I said, OK, well, let's go to the church. So we went to, went to this church building, went to the gym. And it was Quinn, my son, Denny, my father-in-law, and, uh, and Peyton, my, my granddaughter. So we went to the gym for a while, and we just ran around and yelled and screamed and played with a ball. And, and then even that got kind of old. So I said, well, let's go over to our children's wing. So we went over to um, the nursery, and some of the rooms were just you know, playing with the toys and so on. And then, and then my father-in-law, who's not really much of a jokester, you know, he's former FBI agent, and you know, he's a wonderfully warm guy, but he doesn't tell a lot of jokes. But he said, uh, we're sitting there in the nursery, and he said that, you know, the first the first one of the churches that we first attended when, when we were newly married, he said there was a sign above the nursery door, right over the nursery door that featured 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. It said, they shall not all sleep, but they shall all be changed. Now, you know, it's, it's one of those dad jokes and, you know, it's your father-in-law. So I had to give him a little bit of a laugh, but it's a little bit corny, but it is true in the sense that if we really know Jesus, we will begin to look more and more like him over time. And we will live, begin to live in, in starker contrast to the world around us. Of course, in the world where revenge trumps forgiveness every time. Where self-promotion squeezes out sacrifice. Where a me first, you know, what's in it for me mentality reigns. The Christian will begin to look more different than the world. We're not striving to become something we're not, but actually living in light of our true identity. Those who have been, verse 14, those who have been perfected. And I love what uh, he was called the doctor, medical doctor, preacher, and uh, the UK's greatest preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, holiness is not something we are called upon to do in order that we may become something. It is something we are to do because of what we already are. God has perfected us in Christ. We are positionally holy, but now the goal is to live in light of that new reality and new identity. We are holy and we are becoming holy, but this progress that we see will be because God is doing a work in us. Sometimes, you know, in this area, of course, Huntsville, um, if you're an engineer, you have to suffer a lot of jokes about engineers, right? It happens all the time. Um, but theologians are just as bad, you know, pastors, preachers, theologians. Um, they like to debate over things that you wonder, like, how is this ever going to help anybody? Uh, there's a bit of a debate. There has been a debate for the last 15 or so years as to whether sanctification is monergistic or synergistic. Mono being the work of one. Um, is it the work of one or is it synergistic, something that we partner with, with God in? And the, the debate really, you're saying, I've never come across that debate. That's okay. The debate is really an adventure in missing the point. And what I mean by that, it's not, we don't have to, it's a mystery. 
We don't have to figure it out. It doesn't have to have a word assigned to it. We work as God works in us. God works in us both enabling and ensuring that we will work and that our work will yield results. So as John Owen writes, the spirit works upon our understandings, will, consciences, affections, agreeably to our own natures, those who are in Christ. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us, so that his assistance is an encouragement and no occasion of our neglect. Now, that's an old school Puritan way of saying, yeah, we work and God works. We have to do our work, but the work that we do is only because of the work that God has done and is doing in us. He is chipping away at our stubbornness. He is making us more patient. He is softening our hearts. He is calming our anger. He is freeing us from enslavements and addictions. He is changing our desires. He's taking away our love for sin. He's making us more repentant. These are the works of our Heavenly Father. And He does all of this by the power of the gospel as we strive for holiness together. Now, that last word's important, together. That's a key part of this. So look at the uh, verses 19 through 25 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The writer says, therefore, or in light of the fact that we've been forever perfect, perfected, in light of the fact that we are being sanctified and now through the work of Christ have access to God, Therefore, let us do all of these things. Now, you probably picked up on it as I read it, the phrase, let us. Here it's three times in this passage, but actually in the the letter of Hebrews, it's 14 times we see this this phrase, let us, let us. So so the primary theme of, of Hebrews is Christ is better. He's better than the old sacrificial system. He's better than Moses. He's better than David. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than all the other priests. So that's the primary theme. But I would say a secondary theme is that it takes a church to raise a Christian. It takes a covenant community to raise a Christian. So let us, let us, the followers of Jesus are a community, a body, a temple, a people. We are united in Christ and we become like him together. So that brings me to my second point. The process of becoming holy is a community project. Just as sanctification is not something that happens instantly or in a vacuum, um, neither can our lives become, neither would we become holy apart from the context that God has assigned. We cannot, a holy life cannot be cultivated or lived out in isolation, but only done in relationship with other believers. So becoming like him 
Again, second phrase in our mission statement happens together. But how? Well, I want to quickly look at these three let us statements in reverse. And I want to give you three key words to just think about for a moment um, as it relates to how this happens. So look at verse 25 again. We're going to go, kind of, again, start at the bottom and go up. Um, not neglecting to meet together. Uh, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this verse is often interpreted or preached as an admonition against sporadic church attendance. And it is that. It absolutely is that. Uh, when God's people gather, we should be there. You should be there. Uh, this should be your regular rhythm. This is an exhortation to faithful church participation, but it goes much deeper than just showing up somewhere. This is about investing fully and completely and transparently in the believing community. And here's what it boils down to. Here's the word I want to give you as it relates to this. It's the word presence. Presence. This is about giving other believers access into our lives and being present with them. Sadly, so often... Uh, Many of the church's ministries are really geared toward passing on information. So sermons are an explanation of the scriptures. Classes offer theological insights. Lectures specifically for men or for women offer even more Bible content. Uh, DVDs and books offer instructions on particular areas of the Christian life. These are all good things. Uh, I'm not downplaying the importance of these things. We need these things. But these ways of learning are almost all, almost completely information-driven. Remember when Jesus called the 12, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus says, as you are around me, as you live life with me, as you see me interact, as you have meals with me, as you experience who I am and how I love and how I do things, then you will learn truly. Sociologists and educators agree that learning happens best when instruction is accompanied by example. See, we've, I think we've seen, we, we've bought into this notion that right teaching equals right behavior, which then equals a disciple. But we established last week that discipleship's more about being, or more about doing, and more about being, uh, it's about what we love, what we treasure, what makes our hearts sing, what we delight in. How do we learn to delight in God? Well, certainly it's by worship and spending time with God, but it's also by being around other Christians who delight in God. Being around a guy named Randy totally transformed my, my prayer life personally. He was a, a, a cement worker. This is 13, 14 years ago. And he said to me, hey, he said, will you get together with me for just one hour a week, just the two of us and pray? And I have to be very candid with you. That sounded terrifying to me at first. That, that's a long time to pray with just one person sitting there praying. Like, can we fill an hour of prayer? So we started getting together Thursdays at 4, 4 p.m. And we'd sit there and we would pray for an hour together. He'd pray for a while. I would pray for a while. He would pray and go back and forth. And what absolutely revolutionized my own prayer was not so much what he was saying, but to, to Randy, it was such an incredible privilege and honor to actually come before God and to be heard by the God of the universe 
that the way he delighted in prayer just rubbed off on me. I couldn't help it. I mean, he was, he loved praying and he just was, he was blown away every time, every Thursday, blown away that we actually get to come into the presence of the living God. What kind of honor is this? It's being around other people. How does a young man learn to lead his family? It's not by just by giving information. It's by watching a good leader lead. It's by being around older, more mature uh, men through good times and bad. How does a person learn to share the gospel? We can teach classes on it. And I did a couple years ago on apologetics, and, and these are valuable, I hope. But is there anything as helpful as seeing a skillful and loving and winsome person share the gospel? I mean, does anything actually match that in terms of uh, spurring us on to share our faith? When we read account, the accounts of the gospels, we see that the disciples are almost always with Jesus. He poured his life into these men. Discipleship wasn't relegated to a certain time slot in the week. It wasn't for an hour on this particular day. That kind of compartmentalizing actually hinders the disciple-making process. Now, of course, you can't be around everybody. You can't pray for an hour with everybody. You can't, you can't have deep, intimate friendships with everybody. But we can invite some into our lives. We can't grant access to some into our lives where we can say with the Apostle Paul that I love you so much that I'm going to share with you not only the gospel, but my own life as well. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear we are sanctified in the presence of other believers. Now, this is where a number of objections often surface. The first is, I just don't have time. And I get it. You know, I'm already thinly stretched, we hear. But this is where the beauty of presence comes in. This is not about adding other things. It's not about adding other things to your list. This is about inviting others to do the things we already do. And when we do, they see how we parent. They see how we relate as husband and wife, they see how we engage our neighbor. They see how we, we do our job well. How we communicate and so on. There's so much learning that play, takes place in, by this sort of openness. Which that typically leads to the second objection. That is, I don't want anyone to see how I parent. I don't want anyone to see how we interact as husband and wife. That would be so embarrassing. But this is where an understanding of grace comes in. We realize that we're all sinful imperfect people. There's not a single person in this room who is a perfect husband or perfect wife or perfect neighbor or perfect friend, perfect child, whatever it is. So we say, no, yeah, you know, we're all in this together. We're all being sanctified by God. And so we can be open. Now, third objection that I sometimes hear is, yeah, but, but I'm an introvert. There's been a lot of good stuff written on introversion and extroversion from Susan Cain's terrific book, Quiet, which I read a couple years ago, was excellent. It's not, I don't think she's a Christian. I could, didn't seem like it, but there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, Adam McHugh's uh, Introverts in the Church. And, you know, this discussion has been getting a lot of press with personality types and so on. And if you're an introvert, you might be thinking, this, this, what you're saying, this idea of presence, like I'm exhausted just thinking about it. I mean, I'm worn out just thinking about bringing people in having dinner with people, going to games with people, having people in my house and so on. And to that, I would say a couple of things. One, being present with people doesn't mean eliminating alone time. Jesus 
uh, as we read in at least three of the Gospels, often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Doesn't mean, I'm not saying surround yourself always with people. No, that, that, the thought of that wears me out. You can't, you can't do that all the time. Um, so I would say that this is not in place of solitude, quiet. These are spiritual disciplines. And the second thing I would say is, while we want to acknowledge temperament, I think there's value in that, um, and even celebrate the way God made us, and God has made us all different. We want to recognize that. We'd be foolish not to recognize that. But for the sake of discipleship, both introverts and extroverts should be willing to stretch the boundaries of their personality types. Um, this takes prayer, it takes work, it takes sacrifice. But this comes down to presence. Now look at verse 24. Um, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. When the writer says, let us consider, he's saying, be creative, be thoughtful, be intentional, be proactive. So here's the, the second word I want to leave you with. That's the word pursuit. In a disciple-making culture, every person is intentionally pursuing and investing in some. There are plenty of, stor plenty of stories in the Gospels that appear in, in maybe one gospel and maybe not the other. I mean, John's gospel, you have the, the so-called synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John's gospel. And there are some stories that don't appear in John, but appear in others. And, uh, but in all four of the gospels, the calling of the disciples is, is eerily similar. In particular, the way that Jesus went after them. Jesus actually went after them. He didn't uh, depend on them to find him. He went after people. He sought out people. He didn't wait for people to come to him. And not only does Jesus take the initiative to go after these men, but then he says that through his personal investment of them, he promises to equip them uh, to become something so much more than they were before. They used to be fishermen. Now they will be fishers of men. If we're going to accomplish our mission of treasuring Jesus, becoming like him together and sharing the gospel... It's, going to be, it's not going to be primarily through more programs or events or studies or outreach efforts, but actually a greater pursuit demonstrated by our people. If we're going to be a disciple-making church, and remember, a church that's not making disciples is a church that's abandoned her biblical mission. If we're going to be a disciple-making church, it will only happen as we take the initiative to seek people out the way Jesus did. And I know it's hard to pursue people because you don't know how that's going to be received. We, you know, you may get hurt. You, you may get rejected. Some, maybe, maybe it's a hard rejection. These are not that common, but no, I, I can't spend any time with you. Or maybe it's a soft rejection. It's the promise to get together that never materializes. It's the promise of an invitation that never materializes. I know it's hard to pursue people. Because there is risk involved. But if we don't take the risk, we may never enjoy the sort of deep, meaningful relationships that God intends for us as a believing community. And we won't be able to encourage one another in the way that the writer of Hebrews instructs. Now, for you, maybe pursuing people means getting in a small group. Maybe you're the person you say, yeah, I just, I'm just not comfortable in a small group. Maybe pursuing people means getting out of your comfort zone and getting, becoming part of a small group. Maybe it means just reaching out to somebody and say, hey, can we grab coffee? Can we grab, grab lunch? Maybe, and, this, and I know this starts out awkwardly too, 
But maybe you say to someone, uh, hey, can we get together and just read scripture together? I'll read 10 verses and then you read 10 verses and we just really soak in the word of God together. I don't know what it looks like in, in your individual context, but we have to be pursuing people if we're going to be enjoying the sort of relationship, the sanctifying community that God prescribes. Now you say, well, what am I supposed to do with these people? If I do pursue them, look at verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. So that's substantive without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So what is a confession of our hope? It's that deposit of truth that we we cling to, we pass down generation to generation, that we hang on, and so on. So here's the next word. It's gospel intentionality. And you say, well, that's two words, isn't it? And I know I, we, um, when we had those 19 people, we play, played a lot of word games. And every time I would offer a hyphenated word, it's one word. It got shot down. But just for the sake of this discussion, go with me on this. Gospel intentionality so what in the world does that mean? Well, in a disciple-making culture, conversations about what God has done in Christ are regular and intentional. And look, there are plenty of times that we can talk about other things. There are plenty of times we can get together and, and maybe you get together as friends and you talk about college football or deer hunting or bourbon or whatever it is you're into. And that's all fine. That's all fine. Those are fine things to talk about. But if we're going to become like him together, we should also be talking about spiritual things too. It doesn't have to be all the time, but spiritual things. And I know it's hard to bring those up, but if we truly treasure Christ, as we talked about last week, if we truly treasure Jesus, how can we not talk about God's goodness and God's rescuing grace, his kindness, his provisions, his forgiveness, all of those things. Pastor and author Todd Bolsinger writes this, Christian community is not just a shared experience. It's not people who sit together in pews or a movie theater or a football stadium. It's not polite conversation at a potluck or a great weekend together. Christian community is a living reality imbued with the spirit of God. It is God's triune being reflected on earth in and through believers for the end result of seeing each person become more like Jesus Christ. If we're going to become like him together, we have to be present with each other. And I know that involves making sacrifices. And I'm preaching to myself here as much as anybody. We have to be present with each other. We have to be active in pursuing one another. And we do so with gospel intentionality. So, yeah, we, again, we, we, talk about, we can talk about all kinds of things. And, and when, I'm, when I FaceTime my kids, I hit up two of them last night or yesterday, last night. I mean, I, yeah, we're not always talking about spiritual things. We're talking about last night. It was what one of them had for dinner and a deserted, nice restaurant. And for my son, who's my oldest son, who has his daughter and his wife's traveling, it was how do I survive a two-year-old? It was a lot of different things, but there also have, have to be those occasions where we intentionally bring up spiritual things. But let me say this. Don't, don't hear the second part of the message, those three words, which yeah, very much are things to do without hearing the first part of the message. On those days when we fail to pursue others and we don't want to be present with other believers and we are selfish in the way that we spend our time and we don't take advantage of opportunities that 
God gives us to share the gospels, the gospel with us. Remember, Christ pursued us. And he didn't just pursue us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. And then he lived for us, obeying perfectly all of God's commands. And then he died for us, paying the penalty for every one of our sins that we commit. Even our selfishness, even our laziness, even our lack of pursuit, all of those things. He lived for us. He died for us, for us. And so in those selfish moments, we're not in danger of losing God's love. We're not threatened that we may lose God's favor or he may turn his back on us. No, he still loves us and in fact does what we don't do. He keeps pressing in and he keeps pursuing and he keeps overwhelming us with his love and his grace and his mercy. And as we reflect on those things, it becomes the natural overflow of our hearts than to do those and to work in the same way with others. Let's pray.